And I wanna welcome you and thank you for being here once again and just blessings to you, um, our church family. So glad you're here. Uh, I want you to know how much we love you. Um, and I'm so excited for us to spend some time savoring the word of God together this morning. Uh, that's what is uh, so exciting about coming together that we get to look to God's word together. It's the joy of my life and I know it's the joy of so many of, of your lives. And uh, it's glad to be back with you after not guiding you in, in God's word from the pulpit on Sunday mornings in a, in a while. Um, and, uh, and thank you for praying for me. Just briefly, I wanna let you know that all my papers have been written. And um, I'm going to finish up a couple of books in the next couple of days, and then my semester ends on Tuesday. And so I'll have to meet with a professor, assess some sermons over the next month, prepare some assignments before I go to my module in January, but then when I return in January, I'm gonna breathe very deeply because at that point, everything resets and all my assignments are not due until May. So procrastination becomes the name of the game at that point. And uh, after next semester, I'll be halfway done with, with all of my schoolwork um, and the whole program. So I just wanna say thank you for your support. I, I love you. Um, thank you for your provision. Thank you for your love, for your care. Uh, you, you are a great source of joy and strength uh, to me. And, uh, and I love and appreciate you so much. I, I'm really proud of who you are as a church, really thankful for who you are, proud of, of, of the men and women of God that you have become. Um, I have so much affection for you, and, and I really just want the best for you. And uh, I'm at your service. All of our pastors are, and I, and I love seeing your good. And I love seeing God do good things in your life and in your heart. And we're here to, to serve you and to help you in any way I can. I wanna let you know that I, I have been, just accountability's sake, trying to be the best pastor I can, um, while also taking years off my life and reading and writing. Uh, so I'll be a better pastor for you, but I just won't be here as long. And um, maybe that's better for you. That's the best of both worlds. Uh, but thank you for your guidance, your grace, your forbearance. And I can't wait to update you on the things that I've learned this semester. Uh, and I will do that soon. Uh, but my intention isn't to make really this about me. Um, because I also want us to say uh, uh, thank you, let you into my life. But just that I've been extremely blessed by the preaching this past month. And I know you have been as well. I've heard so many stories, so many people uh, just share how God's been moving in their lives through the teaching of our pastors. And for me, it's been the same thing. It's been like a refreshing balm on the heart uh, and the head of, uh, of you know, my life in a sense. And these are just the most genuinely faithful men that I know. And you should take that as a testimony to what's really behind the scenes because I know these men and uh, they bless and honor God and I couldn't do this without them. And really, they make up for so many areas of weaknesses, uh, so many areas of weakness that I have. And uh, they care about you so deeply. Um, they're thankful for you. They love you. And most importantly, they're men who are humble enough to just say what God's word says, right? And courageous enough to just say what God's word says. So uh, in their mind, they have the same mindset as, as Luther when he said that... Uh, I just taught the word and the word did it all. Uh, that's their mindset. That's their, um, uh, that's their tactic in ministry. 
And so what a wonderful thing. And, um, and speaking of the word, that's what I want to get to now. So can you open your Bibles to the book of Ruth? It's the eighth book in your English Bible, the book of Ruth, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And uh, I'm really excited to look at this book with you. And as we get to know the intentions, as we get to know the meaning, as we get to know the themes of this book, and, and really it's going to just encourage you, it's going to give you hope, it's going to give you strength, it's going to give you uh, the ability to keep moving forward in your life um, and, and trusting the grace of God in your life. Um, and I know that you're going to be strengthened by this book, uh, by God's grace especially, and, and really that's what I want for you. And, and so we're going to take five weeks to cover this book um, to cover all aspects of it. Today is going to serve as an introduction to the book. I was going to do this series in four weeks, and we were going to do a standalone message on Christmas Eve. Uh, there's five Sundays in the month of December, four chapters, so I thought it would work out perfectly. But there's just some preliminary things uh, in, in this book that I want to lay before you, and I really want you to glean as much as you can from the content of this book. I want it to have its effect long-term in your life. And so it'd be hard to kind of fit all these themes in together with covering one chapter per week. And so that means Christmas Eve will be in Ruth chapter three, um, and that'll be okay for us, but that's what we'll be doing on Christmas Eve because Christmas Eve falls on Sunday this year. And so we'll have a fresh, unique focus of God's gracious and sovereign fulfillment of sending his promised servant and king. Uh, but that also means you're not going to want to miss Christmas Eve service. So I know many of you go visit uh, maybe your family's church. Maybe this year bring them here so that you don't miss any of the weeks um, in, this, in this series. So listen, as we begin this book and this week serving as just an introduction to the book, um, I want you to know that this is a historiographic short story. I know you say, well, that's a great attention grabber, Sam. Uh, way to draw us in, right? Um, but it, here's why this is important. Let me explain some things to you. The meaning is simple. I mean, you, you think about it. The literary style of this book is a short story. And what plays into that is that the story is, well, what? Short. Good job. And more than that, though, for instance, these characters that are in this story are more exposed than they really are developed. You begin to see who they are. Uh, it speaks of how this story goes from plot to resolution, from problem to solution. It speaks of not only the, the short story aspect of it, but the history of it. And the historic aspect simply refers to the fact that these are real people in a real situation, in a real time, and in a real place. Uh, in other words, this is part of real history. This is part of real history. Uh, the Bible's history is real history. And the genre, of course, is important because, listen, as we come to understand this short story, this narrative in, in the Bible, in some senses we interpret this differently than we would other other uh, places in the scriptures, in some senses, differently than we would. Like, for instance, an epistle, you have this explicit didactic teaching, and you just understand what it says right away. 
And in some senses, though, we interpret this, interpret this the same. We interpret every passage in the Bible in a literal way. And we look at understanding the historic context of it. Where is this in the progression of history and of God's redemptive history? And then we look at the grammar of it. We look at the syntax, the words, how they're relating to one another, how it's laid out. And all of that just compiled leads us into the meaning of a passage. But in other ways, a narrative is different as we interpret it than, say, uh, an epistle or a teaching like that. And so we have to ask some interpretive questions when we look at a, a, a narrative. Like, what does this tell us about God? We're always asking that question as you read narrative, especially Old Testament narrative. You're asking questions like, what does this say about the human condition? You're asking questions like, what does this teach us about the world? What does this teach us about the people of God, about the personal lives of believers? What is this teaching us here? And in a literal way, we ask, what did this mean to the original audience? And how now does this relate to us? And so this short story is going to become very relevant as we understand what's actually happening here. But I also tell you about the genre because I really believe that this needs to be read all together initially. It really needs to be read in one sitting. The reasons why, listen, is because you got to get to know the characters You've got to understand the conflict and the resolution and the development and the emotion of the story has got to carry all the way through until the end. It has to do that for you or else if you break it up right away, it's going to lose its punch. And so everything is wrapped up in the story. And so some of the reason why I wanted us to have this introduction week is I want us to read the whole story together. And that's going to take some time, I know. Okay, but I want to do it together now. And then as we get through this story and we're just going to have to truck through it. I know it's going to feel like we're reading a lot in service. But when we get done, I'm going to take some brief time to open us, open our eyes to some things in this book, some themes. And really, listen, these themes are themes that the author wants you to see. And if you see them, as you go through the book, you'll see them, you'll identify them, and you'll marinate in them, and you'll think about them, and you'll meditate on them, and they're going to have this full effect in your life as we walk through it. And so I want to read this whole book. Bear with me if I slow down, speed up, if it feels like this is a labor to get through it. I, I debated and prayed through this, and I believe that the Lord wants us to do this. And so we're going to read this and I'm going to do my best to get through all the explanation afterward. So direct your attention to Ruth chapter one and let's go to the end of the book. Okay. There's about 20 verses in each chapter. Here we go. Starting in verse one, the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives the name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. 
They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her, two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your own mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in the womb that they may have become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his young men who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and 
She has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and the full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, this man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young, his young women, lest another field, in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley harvest, wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. And she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? 
And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You made this first or this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for my all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone could recognize her. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. And she held it out. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out for the woman, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken by. Uh, so Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down and he took the men, 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then she said to the, then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land belonging to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal, gave it to the other, and that was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have brought, bought from the hand of, of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malon and also Ruth the Moabite, the, the widow of Malon, and I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in the inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brother and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception. 
and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron, Ram, fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. What a story. Now stay with me. What I want you to see and be deeply impacted by is this redeeming providence of this gracious invisible God. That's the point of the book. That's the point of this book. That's the reality and that's what will be the healing balm to your soul as you move through this book. This is what's gonna be the encouragement, the joy. This is what's gonna give you thankful confidence and strength. This is what, it's gonna bring you encouragement and hope and peace and refresh you. The reality of the book that you're stepping into is this, the redeeming providence of the invisible God. The redeeming providence of the invisible God. And that's what I've titled this message today. The redeeming providence of the invisible God. And that's what you're going to see in this book. That's what you're going to see. That's what you're going to become familiar with. Listen, this is what you're going to learn to trust in. This is what you're going to learn to rest in in your own life. That God is working on behalf of his people. He he is working on behalf of you. He's working in your life. He's working. Even when you can't see it. Even behind the heavenly veil. Every detail, he is sovereignly and graciously working and bringing about his will in your life. He's bringing about your good. He's bringing about the good for others through you. He he is working, even though you tangibly can't feel it. He's working to restore you, restore your life. Listen, if you are his, even in your suffering, even in in a shameful background, even when it feels like God's hand might be against you, even when you feel like you don't deserve his kindness, even when you have nothing to merit his grace, he is at work in your life and you can bank on it. R.C. Sproul once said, there are no maverick molecules, meaning God is orchestrating the symphony of your life. There is not one thing that he is not in control of. And this symphony, he's making to sound beautiful. He's making the symphony of your life to sound beautiful. And this goes deeper than you think in the book. You're gonna learn from this book that, listen, God's hand is present in even what appear to be natural events. God's hand is present even in what appear to be chance events. 
God's hand is, is present even in delicate situations, human plans, legal processes, every arena. God's hand is present and he is bringing about his will. And he's not only moving in the lives of influencers, he is moving in the lives of the least likely candidates, the nobodies. So this message is flowing a little bit differently and it will because we're going through this narrative and I want you to feel the suspense and the drama and the relief and the encouragement. And I want you to be refreshed by the principles. But this week, all we're gonna do is speak of these themes. There's very little background information, contextual information that we can't cover along the way. So this, that's not gonna be the content of this intro. It's gonna be these themes that we see in this book. So what are they? The first two are the major and the, three, the last three will be pretty simple for us to mention. The, here's what I want you to see. These are the treasured, the treasured, themes of Ruth. Number one, redemption. Number two, providence. Number three, the hiddenness of God. Number four, righteousness. Number five, faithfulness and grace. These are the great treasured themes of the book of Ruth, and you're going to see them throughout the entire story as you become familiar with them today. And I want them to just sit in your heart. I want you to sit in these juices of these truths and these themes as we read through the book so it just seeps into your mind and heart and it changes you permanently. So let's look at these one at a time today. The first theme of the book of Ruth is redemption. Redemption. If you're familiar with this book at all, right, you probably are aware of this theme, redemption. But I want you to see this, and, and I want you to feel it, and I really want you to relate this to your own life, to what God is doing in your life. One of the key themes of Ruth is redemption. And listen, this, this theme shows itself repeatedly throughout the entire book in the way that the plot progresses and what's happening to the lives of the people. But you want to know something amazing? This shows itself even more foundationally and objectively in the language of the book. The Hebrew root for the, for the concept of redemption occurs 21 times in this book. It, it, you think that's a, it's something the author wants you to, to see? It, it's found once in chapter two, verse 20. It's found seven times in three, nine through 13. It's found 12 times in four, one through 12. And it's found once in four, 14. And you can't understand the meaning of this in one word, in one English word. And we can understand the meaning as maybe simply this, making a claim for a person or a thing, making a claim for a person or a thing. But in a sense, it's restoring in a person's life what is right and what is good. It's restoration. But the word that is used here is redemption. 
And listen now, in the Old Testament, this applies to a, a number of different things. It applies to buying back of a house or a person or land. It, it, it can apply to reclaiming a widow or a barren widow. It can even apply to avenging the, the bloodshed of a relative by killing the murderer. It, it can apply to laying claim on someone or something. It can apply to releasing someone from bondage. But this root is used 104 times in 83 verses in the Old Testament. And what's important to note is how wonderful the range of meaning is, as I just let you into a little bit. Here's the significant uses in the Old Testament. Listen to this. It's found in Leviticus 25, 24 through 27. It's used as a legal concept for redeeming land, okay? It's important. But you also see this concept not only used in this official legal sense, but look, in also this very personal sense, we see the concept apply to God redeeming his people in Genesis chapter 48, God redeeming his people from his enemies in Exodus 6, 6, Isaiah 44, God redeeming his people from their suffering in Job 19, 25. And so the meaning extends beyond the legal context and it applies to personal matters in people's lives. It's not just an official redemption. It's a very personal redemption that moves in the lives of God's people. And this fits when you think about this book and you think about, for instance, the situation surrounding Ruth and Boaz and their marriage. A lot of people connect this redemption to the fulfillment of a leveret marriage. You heard of that before? Where in this case, if that was true, there, this would be simply acting as a legal term. Boaz is filling this legal obligation in marrying Ruth. But the situation in Ruth doesn't really fit the parameters of a leverite marriage. And when you see those parameters clearly, Deuteronomy 25, Genesis 38, ideas like there's no brothers here involved. Ruth is a Moabite, a foreigner. That was for Israelites. So listen, there's common elements, but you have to understand this. And this is, we're building up here. Don't worry. You're going to understand why this is important. The marriage applies some principles of duty, but the marriage implies a, it's more than that. It's a moral act. It's a loving act. It's a caring act. It's not just legal redemption. It's personal redemption. And once again, the situation in Ruth, as you think about Elimelech's land, that's a key theme here. Not only the marriage, but the land. And in this, listen, once again, the situation doesn't exactly match the rules for redeeming land as seen in Leviticus 25. There's some similar elements, but we certainly can't reduce the situation in Ruth and the redemption of the land to mere legal obligation. It's not that. If it was that, listen now, the land would be redeemed right away when they got to Bethlehem because it would be an obligation and they would go to Naomi, the men would, and they would redeem the land because it was law. So the context here portrays the idea of moral, personal redemption, not mere legal obligation. And this is the same idea for the rest of the book. This is important. The author wants you to see this. Listen, the redemption is applied to Ruth. 
It's applied to land. It's applied to Naomi. In other words, if this was being used in purely a legal obligative sense, it wouldn't fit all of these contexts. So one last thing before you see this come to a head. The New Testament uses the idea of redemption mainly in a salvation sense, right? Right? But the book of Ruth isn't using it that way. You got to be honest with yourself when you read this. It's not using it in a theological way. And you can just see that clearly when you read it. The book of, uh, it's true that, that Ruth willingly adopts Naomi's land, which is Bethlehem, Naomi's God, who is Yahweh. And it is true that Ruth's personal redemption, part of it is the fact that she goes through this marriage, through this giving birth, and through this association with now Yahweh is not only redeemed in her life, but redeemed spiritually. That is true. But listen, the book is aiming to show you that this redemption is a more holistic picture. It's more than just this legal sense. It's more than just this, this uh, official spiritual sense. It, the book is aiming to show you that this redemption is moving and permeating in the entire lives of all of these characters. And listen, it extends into the intricacies of life. The genealogy at the end, which I'll talk about in the next point, picks up on the theme of redemption as well. And listen now, it highlights the fact that God is not only redeeming the lives of the people in the story, but he's laying the groundwork for ultimate redemption through his son, right? Now listen to this, okay? How do we get to Christ in this story? Maybe a good point to tell you here. It's not necessarily through a typological way, meaning we make some analogies between Boaz and Christ. Actually, if there was any typology here, which I don't think the author intended, Obed, who's given the name of servant, would probably be the better choice. But here, that's not the way we get to redemption through Christ. From this story, we get to Christ through this redemptive historical pathway of the genealogy. God is redeeming the lives of all of this people, these people, and as he's doing it, he's carrying out his great plan of redemption who will come through the line of David. He is redeeming people's lives and he's carrying out this ultimate great salvific plan of redemption while he's doing all of this. That's how we get to Christ. And so I want you to see this. Listen, here's the summary. Redemption in Ruth conveys a restoration of one's whole life. Marriage and land are involved, but redemption goes beyond that. Naomi's redeemed from her sor sorrow, shame, faithlessness, poverty. Ruth's redeemed from her widowhood, barrenness, independence, background. The men, though dead, have their wives and their land redeemed. Boaz in his righteousness acts as a redeemer out of love and care, not out of obligation. God is behind all of this and God ultimately is bringing about this spiritual redemption through the lives of these people through the seed of Obed to bring redemption to Israel and all the world. He's redeeming the lives of his people in more than a legal sense, in a holistic sense. Every part of their lives. Listen, this is what God is doing in your life. Even though you can't always see it, even though situations are hard, you're dealing with issues and areas that you have to trust him in. And, and even though you know you're confident about the redemption that he has brought to you in this judicial sense of justifying you in Christ, 
If you are being faithful to follow the Lord's commands and his instructions and you're aligning your heart to his, you can be confident that the hardships and the sufferings in your life and all of the circumstances that seem chance and natural, God is working things out for your good. And Romans 8 tells us he is working to bring about a glorious, redeemed life. He's working through your marriage. He's working in your family. He's working in your heart. He's working in your mind. He's working in your ministry and your giftings. And though you might feel like the least likely candidate, he aims to restore your whole life to the praise of his glorious grace. You might be unaware, but he's working to redeem you. He's restoring your life and you can be confident of that. Secondly, we have the theme of providence. And if you put these first two things together, they're really the teaching of the whole book. God's redeeming the lives of his people by his providence. Now listen, this is important for you to be aware of. What is God's providence? Well, it's God's sovereignty at work in the world. Simply put, God's sovereignty, the fact that he's the owner, he's the ruler of all things, that he's the Lord of heaven and earth. Psalm 115.3, the Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever he, what? Pleases. Sovereign. Genesis 1, he created everything. Ephesians 1.11, he works all things to the counsel of his will. Matthew 10.29, not even one insignificant sparrow falls to the ground apart from his decree. His unlimited, unhindered, all-pervasive, wise sovereignty is working out in every detail in the world. That's providence. That's what's happening in the lives of God's people. And that's what's happening in your life. And you need to be aware of that. God is working in every circumstance, every situation, every detail, every disappointment, every decision, all these timings, these conversations, these hardships that you go through, he's working. And let me tell you this, do not miss this. This couldn't be more clear. The author wants you to see this front and center. How? How does he, want, how does he make sure you don't miss this? The aspect of providence. You know how he makes sure you see this? Through the genealogy. It's the key to interpreting the whole book. The genealogy is the key to interpreting the entire book. Throughout this book, you have suffering, famine, questionable decisions, ambiguous terms, mystery. Sometimes you got more questions than you do answers. How do they mean this? What's going on here? Is God involved in any of this? All of it. God's working in these people, situations, and events in every part to bring about exactly what he has planned to carry out his will. Listen, he started this plan all the way back in Genesis. It's gonna consummate in his son, He's redeeming the lives of these people and through this redemption, bringing about ultimate redemption, he is carrying out his exact plan through this story. The ge Listen, you, you have to understand the genius of this. The genealogy is structured with an intention to connect you to Genesis. How? Listen, there are no extras. First of all, it's just straight genealogy. There's no extras here. And it's in a pattern 
that we see in Genesis, which is a 10-person genealogy, which highlights the seventh person and the last person. Seventh person in this genealogy at the end of the book is Boaz. The last person at the end of the genealogy at the book is who? David. What the author is saying to you is that this story is a work of God's providence to bring us from Boaz to David. He's behind every detail of this book. This is genius. Pure, divine genius. Genius. This is the story of Boaz who brings forth King David. This which started in Genesis, this which the book begins with famine, barrenness, death, hopelessness, the character's decisions are highlighted, the attitudes of the people, the questionable thoughts and actions. How is this thing gonna end? It doesn't seem promising. The author intentionally presents the fact that these things are kind of chance events. So you begin to think, is this all chance? Is God involved in any of this? What's his plan here? And all of those chance events lead into your mind, is God gonna be, uh, part of this, he's going to work it out. You have the famine. You have a family who goes to Moab. You have a man who dies. You have the famine ending. You have Orpah leaving. You have an agreement at the gate. And listen, all of this chance is made explicit so that you don't miss it. Listen to this. In Ruth 2.2, 2, when the author just brings this to a climax to make sure you are thinking about chance or providence, Chance or providence? He says in Ruth 2, 2, Ruth just so, what? Happened to come across the field of who? Boaz. Chance or providence? And in the end, with the genealogy, he shows you providence. Providence. Divine providence. We find out that all of these chance events are contributing to his plan. And listen, this should encourage you. You should derive hope and strength and encouragement and peace from the fact that God is working in every detail of your life. There are no chance events. There are no accidents. Either God is sovereign or he's not. And he is working in every detail to bring about his plan in your life. And one of his plans is to redeem your life, every facet of it, for his glory and your good. So God is working. Now this is closely related to the third theme that we find here, which is the hiddenness of God. The hiddenness of God. Providence speaks also of the fact that you can't see what God is, what? Doing. You have to understand this is intentional. God is mentioned by some of these characters along the way, but he never speaks and he never makes an appearance. And this adds to the emphasis of providence. Though he's not visible, God's still working here. Even though you can't see it, and it doesn't seem like he's working. You don't feel it. Your questions go pretty deep. I mean, this is chapter one, verse one. This is during the time of the judges. 
right? The, the history of Israel was very dark at this time. I mean, the question should be in your mind at this time, is God still committed to his people? Is God going to even fulfill his promises? Is he involved? Is he present? What about in this group of nobodies? You got Moabite widows and single landowners. But the answer is a resounding yes. He's involved. He's involved. He's committed. He's bringing about his plan. Even though his people have been unfaithful. As you see behind the curtain, that though he might be hidden, he is working. And you can trust that in your own life as well as you remain faithful to him. Let me give you two more briefly. Number four, you see the theme of righteousness. And you can see this throughout the book and the characters. And it really helps us to see how you are to live, how we are to live. As God redeems our lives, as he works by his hidden, invisible, providential hand, what are we to do as his people? Well, we are to be righteous. We are to be righteous. You see in the characters and in every situation, listen, it's not impossible. You can live righteously in the midst of any situation. And you see it here. And if you don't live in this righteous way, you have reason to worry about God's work in your life, whether or not it's the work of God or the consequences of your sin. But just briefly, let me just tell you this. The characters are being set as examples of righteousness for you to see. Naomi cares about enough about the welfare of her daughters-in-law to send them off for their own benefit. Wow. Naomi, though she's despondent, who does she accredit her suffering to? God. She's not lost her faith. She knows who's behind this. Ruth, even a Moabite, shows covenant-like loyalty to Naomi. Ruth and Orpah, they deviate from the Gentile Moabite women who are seen as dangerous and sexually manipulative. The gender roles are so skewed in judges that this picture deviates from them. You see the terrible effects of the curse in judges, promiscuous women, domineering men. But in this book, you see the right way. Ruth falls in line with this pattern of the patriarchs in Genesis who leave their land and go on to an unknown place to follow Yahweh. And she comes and in Ruth 2.2, it says to come under the shadow of the Almighty's wings. And then the, the book depicts these gender roles in a redeemed way. You just have Torah righteousness being exemplified. The men of Boaz in the field don't do what so many men would do to a single woman. Boaz provides for and protects Ruth, not as a duty, but from the heart. You can just continue on. And in the, in the whole Hebrew Bible, from really every book, there's really not a better picture of righteous, Torah righteousness from the beginning of a book to the end. So as God is invisibly working in the plans and the lives of the people, they're acting righteous. 
Naomi could have been manipulative. Ruth could have been promiscuous, right? The men could have been domineering and taken advantage. Boaz could have been selfish. No situation. This is a difficult situation. And they're exhibiting, all of them are exhibiting this Torah righteousness. Even if you are in a hard situation, as God is working behind the scenes, he's redeeming your life. You can live righteously in the midst of it. And let me give you this last one, faithfulness and grace. Faithfulness and grace. One of the most significant verses in this book because the author clues you in on this theme in, in 220. It uses this word, Hebrew word, hesed. And hesed can't be really translated in one word. It's a term expressing love and faithfulness and mercy and grace and kindness and loyalty through acts of devotion and love and kindness that come from the heart. They extend beyond requirement or obligation or duty or law. And, and we see that these characters are being faithful we see that God is being in this way, this faithful, this hesed. God is faithful and he's doing this work by his grace. None of these people deserve any of it. He's just faithful. These insignificant people during the time of the judges through this great plan of his, he is doing this great work. Now, I know that also this author is attempting to show you this faithfulness. You wanna know Something also wonderful that is a work of God's providence. In the Hebrew Bible, the book of Ruth comes right after Proverbs, which means that it directly follows Proverbs 30 what? 31. You end with this faithful woman in the book of Proverbs. And this book has a lot of elements of wisdom literature. And you see Boaz even refer to Ruth as this faithful woman in the way that she's gone about a treatment of Naomi. It's no mistake that this follows Proverbs 31, the woman of noble character, and at the same time follows the book of Judges in the English Bibles in the Septuagint so that we see that this also this theme that God is still working in the lives of his people even in this dark time of the Judges. I mean, God is just, this is genius, pure genius. But faithfulness, Ruth shows this faithfulness. The, the wisdom of Yahweh changed her. She's selfless, she's submissive, she's hardworking, she's loyal, she's compassionate, she's resolved. And really it's showing every character because this book could just as easily be named Naomi as it could Ruth. Ruth actually has the least stage time. But that's the work of God's providence as well. But let me say this one last thing and then we'll close. In Deuteronomy, there's also this theme that is carried out in the book of Ruth. And it's regarding the foreigner. In Deuteronomy 10, 17, there's encouragement to love the foreigner. In Deuteronomy 23, there's this encouragement to separate from the foreigner. And so what you see is just this tension, this tension that's involved here. And the only really way to resolve this tension is through identifying just the faithful, 
the faithfulness of people and the grace of people, the faithfulness of God and the grace of God. So we can learn that God is faithful to us. We are to be faithful men and women to each other. God shows us his great grace and we should exhibit that grace to others. As we close here, let me tell you this book is a magnificent story. It centers on God's redeeming providence. God is working on behalf of his people. It's filled with interesting characters, dramatic storyline. Really the ending only sets you up for a a beginning. Uh, The language is intentionally uh, repetitive. At times the story is puzzling and you wonder what's really going on. Are they being disciplined for leaving Bethlehem and going to Moab or is that the right choice? Things like that, you're wondering. But then you see that this story is mainly about God and that God is redeeming the lives of his people by his providence, even though they can't see or feel it. And then they are living righteously and faithful and God is showing his faithfulness and grace. And ultimately will do so through bringing forth his son. And so I just pray that the Lord would use this book to strengthen you during this series, to encourage you, to set your mind upon him and what he's doing in your life. He's redeeming it. He wants every area of your life to be restored. He's not far off. He's working. You can bank on that, even though you can't see or feel it. He's there. It's your job to live righteously and to trust his faithfulness and his grace. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. It does this great work in us as we trust it and as we look to it. I pray that this book would just be a great blessing to so many God, I know we're all going through different things. Some of us are learning to trust you in our ministry. We've taken steps of faith and we need you to work. Some of us are trusting you through trials. We are trying our best to work through situations that are difficult. Some of us are experiencing suffering. And Lord, Others are just trying to be more faithful. Some don't even know you in this room. Lord, I pray that we would look to your redemption in our lives, to know that you want to change every part of us, that you're working by your great providence, even though we can't see or feel it. Lord, I pray that you would make people in here righteous and that we would live righteously. We are so grateful that you show us in this book that you are faithful, that you act by your grace to your people. Lord, let us never forget it and let this book change us. In Jesus' name, amen.